Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 16th, 2023, the You'll Miss Joe Manchin edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm not wearing a Slate hoodie, but Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven is wearing a Slate hoodie. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. And John Dickerson of CBS Primetime, also weirdly wearing a Slate hoodie in New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. This week on the campfest, Joe Manchin is retiring from the Senate. How damaging is that for Democrats? And will he actually run for president on a third party? Then the Supreme Court's extremely toothless new ethics guidelines. They give uh, dentures. They give gums, by contrast, seem sharp and, and painful and bitey. Then is the Gaza war tearing apart the Democratic Party? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And I am so pleased to say that we are going to be doing our conundrum show live in New York on December 7th, Thursday, December 7th. We're going to be at the 92nd Street Y. You can go to slate.com slash gabfest live to get tickets. Please come see us do. This show is so fun live. You will be part of the discussion and part of the conundruming. Uh, and we would really love to see you there. So 92nd Street Y on Thursday, December 7th. Go to slate.com slash live and hear us talk about such questions as when will M&Ms no longer be produced and why? Or in what circumstances would you give a stranger a kidney? Or do you prefer ranch dressing or dressing like you're at a ranch? So those are among the conundrums you've sent us. So please join us for the show, slate.com slash live. Also, you can send us your conundrums if you'd like at slate.com slash conundrum. I think the qualities of the conundra and conundrums have gotten really better in the recent years. That kidney and M&M one, one could spend a day inside those questions. Yeah. I think that M&M's one is probably like a Harvard Business School question that they ask every year. Maybe we're taking the HBS exam or something by accident. Joe Manchin, the surprisingly durable Democratic senator from West Virginia, has hung up his coal shovel. Manchin will not run in 2024, guaranteeing, or all but guaranteeing, I suppose, that Republican former Governor Jim Justice will be elected to the seat. Uh, frankly, that was pretty much all but guaranteed anyway, given that West Virginia is now one of the two or three most Republican states in the country by most measures. Uh, Manchin has also not yet rejected the idea of running a presidential campaign in 2024, presumably as the no labels nominee on a third party ticket. So Emily, was Joe Manchin a good senator from a Democratic perspective? Well, Joe Manchin was the 50th senator. And so in a, he was a necessary senator for getting any legislation passed. I guess the, another way to think about your question is, was it helpful for the Democrats to have someone who was thoroughly unprogressive, who was going to jam up the works, who was not going to agree to some of the major things that President Biden wanted. You know, it obviously depends where you fall on the policy spectrum. I feel like there was a long stretch where the delay of the Build Back Better legislation was really damaging to Democrats. And it was really hard to see what Manchin was doing, what he wanted. But just all the months that they frittered away seemed like a political problem. That delay, I felt like, was just like a political Achilles heel. What do you think, John? 
Kirsten Cinema is a, a, has to be a part of that story. And also there's a, a view that he provided cover for other Democrats who might not have in the end been there. So it's unclear exactly. I mean, he was certainly the lightning rod. It's a question of how much um, he was the lone lightning rod or the single contributor to the um, conditions you you describe. But I think your point is basically the 50th senator is the, the most important one, which is that without him, a lot of stuff doesn't get passed. There is this constant sense of disappointment in him from certain folks on the left. And I always thought, you know, this is a guy who's used his his position, used his leverage. That word leverage is so accurate in his case. He had an enormous leverage. Like as one senator, he actually had the power of almost 50 senators. And he used that leverage to benefit his state, to benefit himself, and yet still held the country up for ransom a lot less often than he could have. He actually could have done a lot more to benefit himself or to mess with his party um, than he did. And, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act did pass. The Biden administration has had a, a string of legislative wins because Manchin was willing to vote for things, which he, you know, mostly agreed with, but in part didn't agree with. I, I've never understood the idea that people were disappointed that this guy from West Virginia, which is an incredibly conservative state, he's covering his ass all the time does end up voting for your your policy positions most of the time. And that seems like a win-win all around. Well, I guess one criticism I would levy is that if you, he thought he wasn't running for office, then he was less constrained. And his disinterest in real democracy reform and limitations on you know voting rights legislation and really trying to safeguard the whole democratic structure for the 2024 election, that I will uh, hold against him. If you accept correctly, as you point out, David, he was working for his state. One can still be working for one state and do it uh, in a way that goes too far in terms of being beholden to the interests of the moneyed interests in your state. Um, and so I think you'd have to look at um, his relationship to coal and ph pharmaceutical companies to assess whether he was merely working on the behalf of his constituents or he was merely or he was working on behalf of the wealthy interests in his state. I mean, I guess I, I guess just to, to that point, John, I mean, I, look, I love politics and politicians. I love people who act like politicians. Joe Manchin's bread was buttered by the coal industry and by the pharmaceutical industry. And his bread was buttered by pretty conservative voters in West Virginia. And he was transactional on those issues. And he did did the did the work that politicians have done since time immemorial on those issues and he was not idealistic and he and his positions were regressive on those issues in ways that I don't like but it was it it, it it's like clear like no i got it's, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a clear behavior it's like he he acted like a regular politician has acted and we just don't have there's well, so little I'm not of sure that that's, yeah i i I'm, believe me i'm i'm with you i but obviously there are limits to that personal conscience and the use of reason still have to be intact within being a politician, right? Because otherwise you've just, yes, what you've, yes. if you take it to the logical conclusion, you're basically defending yes. Donald Trump, which is, um, you know, he's just being a politician when he does anything that the most radical member of his constituency would want him to do. Um, and by the way, he may be the most radical member of his own constituency. But, um, but I'm saying, so I'm saying is the point is you would want to find the line with Joe Manchin. In other words, like even in your your um, open interpretation of what a politician must do, is there are limits, and so the question is, did he meet those limits? Yeah, I feel like you're idealizing him a little bit in this kind of like 
uh, counterintuitive way. And it seems like some of the positions he was taking had more to do with like wealthy corporate interests in West Virginia. Like it wasn't some great, but like, why is that so great? Then like you're not great. It's just, it's, it's comprehensible. It's you, you understand the motivations and he happened to be the one politician with leverage and it's visible. It's like totally transparent with him because he is the person who gets to decide how the bills are written. And so you get to see it. And it's, it's not, I'm not, it's not like I'm, I am full of admiration for him and wish everyone would be like him. It's that given that he is a senator from West Virginia, which the state the Democrats cannot possibly hope to hold, that at least you understood exactly what it takes to get him to come along with what you want to do. It, it sets the borders of the legislation pretty clearly. And he was persuadable. He was winnable. And that it, it again, I'm not saying that he is a noble person. I'm just saying he is a he is a great example of a politician and I like politics. I can't even. I can't even. I can't oh, even. No, 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 no. I just literally like the thought left my head. John, you Oh, go. I'm so sorry. Well, what I would say is uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that we have to keep going around this Mulberry Bush because I, because essentially the, you just replace Donald Trump and populism. And it's like, you know where he stands. You know what's motivating him. It's perfectly transparent. I'm not doing that as a like stupid. That's not true. Trick. Donald Trump is not tr- transactional in that same way. That's not true. I don't think it's at all the same thing. I think he's not. You know exactly what his interests are, which is himself and um, and his MAGA base. And you know exactly where he's going. I mean, I guess the difference, David, to try to save you is that you are wedding Joe Manchin to West Virginia and Donald Trump is like all in for himself. So you could make that distinction. And also Joe Manchin is there are particular issues where, you know, he's going to vote with the interests of the coal interest in the state and the farm interest in the state. But he also is willing, like you give him that, but he'll give you this other stuff. He'll let you have this other stuff, which which he probably doesn't even care about that much. Well, here's another question. Did he pre- prevent the party from going too far left? Like, did he hew the party to a more popular sort of central position? Like, for example, on energy policy, all the things that he wanted to cut, which seemed really like about West Virginia's interest or opening the pipeline that was so important to West Virginia. Were those actually decent policy proposals given the political composition of the Democratic coalition? I think, John, you tipped at that early where you said he gave other Democrats cover. Is that that's what you mean, right? Yeah, I think he gave other Democrats cover. And also, obviously, the viewpoints of the most liberal parts of the Democratic coalition are not the country's viewpoints. And there has to be some mechanism if liberals really want those things to happen. They, and this is, there's an analog to this, of course, on the right, but if if liberals really want something to happen, they they have to make the case for it and elect people and get them in office. And all of that political work prepares the ground for the policies, in theory, if it's working well. And therefore, somebody like Joe Manchin, I mean, the solution to Joe Manchin is elect more senators that you like in other places um, or in West Virginia, which you're never going to do. But if you're a liberal, like just screaming at Joe Manchin doesn't do anything. Um, The more durable thing is to elect more Democrats, other places that can swamp Joe Manchin with your views. And if you can't do that, maybe your views are not going to win the day um, in the country. So I think he, to some extent, exposed a reality of the system, which is that in the same way that the the House Republicans are realizing there's a reality to the system, which is when you have a tiny margin and uh, a polarized country and you're trying to do things that are too radical for the system, you're not going to win. And Manchin kind of kept 
reasserting that principle that in a narrow Senate majority, there's only so much you can do. And that's the reality. And it's not Joe, it's not Joe Manchin's fault. It's the way the government works. Yeah. I mean, if you think about compare Joe Manchin to Matt Gates, I mean, Joe Manchin was a much better servant of the Democratic Party than Matt Gates has been to the Republican Party, I would argue. Going to the, the point about electing Democrats elsewhere. So John, is his departure devastating? For Democrats, well, if, I mean, they're definitely not going to hold that seat in in West Virginia now. I think it would have been a really tough race for for him, um, but maybe not impossible. On the other hand, the things they would have to do to win that race might not be so great for Democrats. But it's not good for the Democratic Senate hopes, um, which were which are tough uh, anyway. So then the question is, what does it mean in the presidential context? I mean, I think you know, then that gets us into the question: What is no labels? mean and what is it wanting to do? And is Joe Manchin really interested in no labels or is he interested in going out, um, burnishing the idea that he represents a a large um, middle? So he's got a lot of forces inside of him battling, as we all do. One set of forces are, you know, dancing with those that brung him in West Virginia, um, which includes industries that other people might find objectionable. On the other hand, he does have this kind of old fashioned view about trying to work towards, you know, ideas in the middle. Um, and, um, and it's good to have some of those people around when you're in a legislature where that's the only way you can get stuff done. Um, it's actually, and in that sense, it's very close to what Biden's got still in his bones, which is the ability to work with people you might find objectionable, but you're in a situation where you have to work with people you find objectionable to get stuff done. So, um, I think he'll go around getting that burnished, whether he actually decides to run, um, you know, is is quite another thing. So just to just to summarize, no labels is this third party effort that wants has has at least made noises under the auspices of Joe Lieberman, boo, um, made noises about uh, putting a third party ticket on the ballot, putting putting a ticket on the ballot with a, probably a Republican and a Democrat, you know, with a Larry Hogan, a Joe Manchin type on it and, you know, occupying a center. And what, is there is there a consensus, John, about who that would hurt in a presidential race? No, I don't think there is. I think you can argue it. Um, I mean, you have to look at specific states. The, the margins are so narrow in individual states. And would really the voters that would suburban Republican women who go vote for Joe Manchin instead of Joe Biden, because they don't, they're not going to vote for Trump. They hate Trump. So if you give them Manchin to go to and not Biden, are a sufficient number going to go out and vote for Manchin and not Biden and and give the state to Trump? You can maybe make that case. That, I guess, is a pretty good um, possibility. Um, But I think we're a long way off. The one that feels much more realistic to me is that, um, you know, that Cornel West and Jill Stein and and even Robert Kennedy Jr., who you could imagine taking votes away from Trump, they, they hurt that they hurt Biden with his, the base of his party, especially with respect to the way things are going um, with the Israel Hamas war. And um, so I, I think that's actually a cleaner idea of who gets hurt. Um, and the reason I also think those voters hurt although you can argue another way and then I'll shut up is there's a chaos voter out there who just wants to mess with the system. Chaos voters aren't going to go vote for Joe Manchin. And I feel like there are more chaos voters, um, on the Trump side, um, 
uh, on the other hand, at some point, I, I sort of feel like you can go round and round with with all these these other candidates. Um, but I, I feel like it's a cleaner. The liberals hurt Biden more than I think Manchin uh, does. Emily, do you think there's a chance that, that Manchin will make a presidential run? He's very old. He's 76 years old. He's not going to be president. I mean, in the end, I don't think so, because it just seems like such a chaos thing to do. And the margins are so tight. Anyone in this role is going to be seen as a spoiler. And if Biden lost, why would he want to have that be part of his legacy? Can I say just a couple of quick things about no labels? First of all, as I've said before, it's irritating because it, it allows to live this unicorn theory of the presidency, which is that somebody can just gallop in and like have perfect solutions and and it's all going to be wonderful. And there's a lot of money behind that. And to the extent that that idea is out there and people can sort of comfortably park in the idea that there's some unicorn president out there who can solve all our problems and do the job easily is harmful because that's not the way the world works. So that's bad. There's also obviously the hidden donors who have all kinds of interests that we don't know about. Um, but there are two other things that I think are useful about no labels is one, um, you know, some of what Joe Manchin is saying um, uh, about Biden is not great for Biden, but he's also a very sharp critic of Donald Trump and articulates to people from a kind of Joe Manchin perspective, the dangers of another Trump presidency. Um, and to the extent that you want people to be fully informed about the danger of a second Trump presidency, um, Manchin is a useful person in that regard. And finally, when you look at what Nancy Pelosi, who attacked no labels quite squarely, um, recently did, is she said, no, la no labels is perilous to our democracy. I hesitate, I hesitate to say no labels because they do have labels. They're called no taxes for the rich, no child tax credit for children. They're called the let's undo the Affordable Care Act. Now, whether you believe any of that or not, what she did is she went right to three policies. Um, and, uh, to the extent that no labels engages everyone in an argument about what's actually at stake specifically with respect to policies and who, um, you know, is going to be benefited or not by various candidates. I think that is, um, really useful so that it stops becoming, it stops being a candidate, a candidacy or a campaign about vibes and more about actually what we're talking about here. I think that's useful. I am really struck when I talk to rich people, which I do occasionally, and I have over the past, you know, six or seven years, because I've been my fund raised for for companies and talk to rich people and you know, just know rich people. You guys know rich people. I'm struck by the number of them who are live in that delusion, the fantasia that there there is just this central place, this common sense place. If we just got somebody in there, they would solve it. And we just don't need this woke left and this crazy Trump right. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of the everyone being divided up. And uh, just a, there's a simple solution. There's a, they, they, I feel like there is among rich, successful people, that belief is much stronger than it is among other people. I mean, you can kind of understand it because there seem like there should be common sense solutions to a whole bunch of problems. And then the politics is so divisive that we can't get there. It's just that in the political system, it's totally unrealistic, right? Like the reasons we can't get there and are divided are the reasons it's not going to work, even if on paper it should. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Whenever I say that, Emily literally always shakes her head. <laughs> no. <laughs> no matter what, I've consistently, I've, I've probably said that line like 10 times over episodes and Emily's always like, no, who would want that? 
<laughs> but if you do, yep. unlike Emily, you should stick around for our bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talk about, talking about uh, Xi Jinping's inviting to dinner on Wednesday night, the families that he stayed with 40 years ago in Muscatine, Iowa, and uh, talk about what that means and is it important. Um, that's just for Slate Plus members, though. If you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. You've been able to help keep us going for these many years, almost as long as it's been since Xi Jinping has been in Iowa. Uh, if you are not a Slate Plus member, please sign up. We'd love it. You'll get bonus segments of every episode of the GabFest, as well as other Slate podcasts. You'll get special discounts on our live shows. You'll never hit the paywall on the Slate site. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. The Supreme Court issued a code of ethics guidelines for justices this week. They issued the code, I would note, first of all, in the same pompous font they use for their decisions. That itself was a red flag for me. They did a sacred <laughs> writ aspect of it. They dressed it up as though it was Brown v. Board of Education. Well, it it's, was trying to come in, from all of them. It, so, yes, they issued it in the same, you're right, in the same format and font as a judicial yeah. opinion. I want to know, does pompous font come with Microsoft Word yeah. or is it one of those plugins? You know what it's called? I looked it up. I was so annoyed by it that I looked it up. It's oh, called my Century God. What is it? Schoolbook. Century oh. Schoolbook. Why can't they just use Times New Roman? Better yet, in this case, Comic Sans. Um, these guidelines did not get off to a great start in the public, at least, uh, at least in the, the, the left-leaning public, in part because it began with this extremely irritating statement from the justices saying that they these guidelines or this code is only necessary because of a public misunderstanding. <laughs> it's not you. It's not, I'm mean, sorry. It's, it's not, not us. us. It's you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yes. We, uh, yeah. I mean, so so they, they're pretending like they only felt the need to issue it because we, the public, were so dumb that we didn't understand the exceptionally high standards that all the justices were always holding themselves to and had since time immemorial. They did not feel the need to issue them because oh, of the flurry of shocking revelations about the extremely pleasant gifts and favors done for justices, uh, especially Justice Clarence Thomas by various conservative billionaires. That had nothing to do with why they issued this at all. So, Emily, um, while I sit and stew and, and seethe about this, what do the guidelines say and why are they, why are they dismaying to a lot of people? Well, the most important flaw of the guidelines is they have no enforcement mechanism in them. And so they're written in this um, language of should, right? You should do X and Y, but if you don't, <laughs> nothing will happen to you. So that's a big problem. It's always existed because the Supreme Court sees itself as unpoliceable, that they have to be their own referees. I just find that really unnecessary as a whole construction. They could come up with an ethics panel of retired judges. They could figure out a way to draft some current appellate judges to sit in for them when they recuse themselves. Because one of the problems with the guidelines is that they basically said, well, we're the only ones who can hear this case and these cases. And so the grounds for not hearing the case should be narrow. And sometimes the need for all nine of us should override um, ethical concerns, which I think is very misguided. I also, though, felt a little bit of like pour one out for Chief Justice Roberts. You know, they've been working on these guidelines forever. They had to pretend there was nothing new here and that the only reason that they were issuing them, as you said, was that like the public doesn't get it when in fact there are like eight, 80 million really prominent elephants in the room here. And so that super 
grudging paragraph, as I felt like every article I read called it grudging, really soured the whole tone of it. Um, and then the, the lack of an enforcement mechanism is a real problem. I am going to defend them in a minute, but I want to hear what you all thought about it first. As lawyers, they are awfully hung up on the idea that the only kind of binding accountability can be formal. Like, oh, well, we are the we are above everyone, so we can't possibly be bound by anything. You can have all kinds of things that are effectively binding that are informal accountability mechanisms. If you create a public system of reporting and commitment and you force them to, to, to publicly commit to reporting all this stuff about it's it is not that is not a punishment, but it is very clear. Like if you have to report anything that's over $50 of value and you will be more careful about what kind of $50 you will have, you you can create a contract with each other where where it's you, you say we're going to, you know, publicly shame you if you do certain things. That's not it is not like Congress then, you know, sending a justice to prison because they they ate a free meal they shouldn't have. It's, it's not the president. It's not a separation of powers problem. You can bind yourself and 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 set up mechanisms to punish yourself if you if you commit a misdeed. And the way they pretend they can't do that is fucking infuriating. They absolutely could create something that binds them if they wanted to, but they don't want to. The way they presented it seems to swallow the thing they were trying to achieve. So if this was really just about trying to improve the perception of the court because the court needs legitimacy for its rulings, obviously we should recognize that there are a whole bunch of other things that the court does that contribute to or detract from its legitimacy. I would say one I mean, there's obviously the rulings. The secondary one is that Clarence Thomas and his wife's relationship to the effort to overthrow the last election, I think is even has even more challenges and problems with it than the Harlan Crow relationship. But that's another matter. But that's also contributes to this question of legitimacy. Can your wife be engaged in trying to overthrow an election and you not recuse yourself from matters before the court that are related to that? But leaving that aside, if you're trying to fix this perception problem, because it leads to your legitimacy, if you in your first paragraph say that the perception problem is wrong and the people who held those perceptions are misguided or whatever, you're sort of insulting the audience you're trying to convince with the new material. So that seems to be a problem sort of in the middle of this. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I will say that, David, going back to your point, I actually think that this could do some good because the justices see it as binding in some way, like they signed off on it. And so even without teeth as a kind of soft form of, you know, sitting on your shoulder and making you think about what you're doing and whether what you're doing runs afoul of it, it's useful. Um, I mean, it really, I understand it's totally at their discretion. It's up to their behavior. That part's infuriating. But I do think it could be a check on their behavior. Going I agree forward. with that. As is the yeah. terrible publicity yeah. that Thomas and, you know, Lesso Alito and somewhat Gorsuch have been getting. Like, that is some kind of check. It's not enough, et cetera, but it's something. The, the thing I didn't look, dig into, Emily, and maybe you have the answer, is I, I actually don't feel like the enforcement mechanism is really what's important. I think the infor- important thing is exposure slash transparency. And you're right that there's it's still lacking. There is some reporting requirements that Congress has imposed on the court, but I don't see new ones here. Yeah, to me, that's all that matters is like if you are required to reveal the sources of income gifts uh, above, you know, twenty five dollars, seventy five dollars, whatever it is, favors to family members that 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 is in itself effectively enforcement because no one will no one will want 
all of that stuff out there in public if it's embarrassing, if it's at the scale that that Thomas has been accepting it at. Well, that's been an interesting part of the Thomas story. There are instances of him, yes, disclosing a private jet flight many years ago, and then he stopped. And so clearly, right, like he cared about the public perception. And you're right that if there are stricter um, reporting requirements that might affect his behavior, or certainly at least we would know about it. I, I'm not exactly sure whether this really goes far enough. It's possible that that's already, I mean, he has already said there are things I, I would report going forward, et cetera. So we assume, Emily, that they Roberts decided he could only do this without embarrassing Thomas or singling anyone out. And therefore, that's why it's such weak tea. It had to be unanimous. And then in order for it to be unanimous, it had to be written, I guess, with that paragraph that was like, there's nothing to see here. We've done nothing wrong. Even though there's something, I mean, I think you're totally right, John, that if it's all about perception, then you're basically uh, undoing the the task that you've set yourself by setting it up that way. Do you want to hear more from Emily Bazelon? <laughs> I bet you do. Emily Bazelon. <laughs> Emily Bazelon. In the world. Has, just this is the one thing me. readers, viewers can agree on. Uh, uh, listeners, I think. Neither readers nor viewers. I really I hope they're not viewers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just staring into the logo on their <laughs> smartphones. Oh, my God. But speaking of readers, we have a GabFest Reads coming up. It's Emily's conversation with James Sturm about his adaptation of Watership Down into a graphic novel, um, which I have I have not listened to the Gabfest Reads, but with your recommendation, Emily, I've already bought it. Uh, I'm a big fan of James's, as are you, I know. But Excellent book. Uh, how's the conversation? Good conversation. The conversation, also excellent, even though I participated in it. Do you need to have read the original Watership Down to enjoy the graphic novel? And no. That's why I'm getting it because I've never read it. And I like I would like to see pictures of rabbits. It's almost all dialogue. That's the way James told the story. And the pictures are great. I don't think you need to read the original book at all. It's dialogue from the book, I should say. Like the characters talking. That's what I meant. Check it out in your GFS feeds. Hey, GFS listeners. The holiday season is upon us. God help us. And the Slate Shop is the perfect place to take the guesswork out of your gift list. Browse our selection of hand-poured candles. Who does not love a hand-poured candle? Classy cocktail kits, stunning stationery, and expertly crafted pasta makers. That's not even alliterative and everything in between. We even have official merch for the Slate fans in your life. From November 24th to 27th, that is Black Friday through Cyber Monday. We're offering 30% off all items in the store. Get your gift sets, stocking stuffers, white elephant gifts, and a treat for yourself while you're at it by going to slate.com slash shop. That's slate.com slash shop. Happy shopping. Man, this next topic. I, so I wrote an, I was writing an introduction for this, and the introduction like goes on and on. It's like a thousand words <laughs> long. You were just long. like, put like, your pen down. Oh and we're like, forget it. I don't want to say a word. So we're going to talk about the war between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, um, but we're going to talk about how it has fissured the American left, really, um, and what that means. So most of the Democratic Party establishment has more or less backed Israel's invasion of Gaza, treating it as a justifiable response to the terror and horror of October 7th and the mass hostage taking of civilians and accepting or at least acquiescing to the idea 
that Israel is seeking to protect the lives of Palestinian civilians, but that it cannot wage the war that it needs to wage and that it's entitled to wage against Hamas without causing civilian suffering because of the ways in which Hamas has knit itself into the civilian population in Gaza. So that's where most of the Democratic Party has landed, but of course, not everyone. There's a big set of people who identify with the left who are calling for a ceasefire and uh, there are parts of the Democratic Party. There are elected Democratic officials, 500 uh, officials in the Biden administration anonymously signed a letter this week urging the administration to to seek a ceasefire. It's really complicated. Uh, it's really complicated because I think I'll just lay my cards on the table, which is that I, you know, I'm a, a Democrat and I like all Democrats I know couch my support for what Israel's doing with caveats, like causes more pauses in the fighting, more humanitarian relief, condemn Netanyahu, stop the the dehumanizing language about Palestinians, stop the incursions in the West Bank and the establishments of settlements and the harassment of Palestinians and murder of Palestinians in the West Bank. You know, worry about the disproportionality of suffering. And yet I also think like this is a justifiable war, like under the terms of what, you know, when it, it, when is war justified and is it being waged in in a justifiable way? I kind of think it is, but it's just awful. So uh, I, I'm now going to stop and try to think of a question. <laughs> who's right? Who's right, Emily? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. mean, I think the hardest thing about this is the pressure to take sides and then the way that that seems to flatten all the complexity. And those pressures seem super alive in the Democratic Party and especially, you know, at least or maybe this isn't especially maybe it's just where I'm paying attention. But the campus politics um, that involve a lot of young progressives splitting seem really present. I was super interested in a story about Bernie Sanders, who is this symbol for young progressives. Right. I mean, the Bernie bros like that's a kind of identity. And he is, I think, landing kind of where you are, David, at the moment, um, trying to sort of hold more than one position at once, um, or at least not to condemn Israel and not to call right this minute for a ceasefire. And I think his reasoning is, you know, the events of October 7th were truly horrible. No state would abide by that kind of invasion into its territory. And Israel can't live next door to Hamas. I think that's probably, you know, what the Sanders line is on this. And yet the war is completely terrible. And so he's trying to say more extended pauses, but he's just getting a ton of criticism from his former staffers and followers because they want this very um, clear position in favor of a ceasefire and they cannot abide the suffering in Gaza, which is totally devastating right now. And it's just trying to navigate those waters, you know, even for or especially for Bernie Sanders, it seems like really hard. And if he can't do it, you know, what about Joe Biden? What effect is this going to have on turnout in 24 on people working for and organizing and being excited about mainstream Democratic candidates? I would add just two things. One is on the on the on what what one is supposed to believe, what one is supposed to stay, and what the and and George Packer um, wrote a piece in the Atlantic that I think some people will interpret. It was about basically artists speaking up and feeling compelled to speak up about politics, and in this specific case, um, 
this conflict. And his argument essentially was that um, the two worlds are very different and um, artists lose skill and all the things that they're great at when they rush into politics, because as you said, Emily, it flattens and it flattens their skill. And some people are going to read that, but that is him saying, you know, shut up and dribble, which I don't think is his, it's much more nuanced than that. And in the course of writing that, he makes a point basically that there is this constant pressure to speak out no matter what or who you are, which is we've seen this flood of statements and that basically that pressure to comment brings suspicion on, on any failure to comment. So that you can't even say, I'm trying to think about what I think here, or I recognize the complexities uh, here. And I think that 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 makes for um, a very messy space. The second point I would say is, you know, the, the Biden's position is, I mean, he has, um, you know, he is lashed to Netanyahu and um, Israel's policies at the moment, but he had to be if he was ever going to have any leverage. And then the question is, how much leverage does he have? And if the precondition for the leverage was was standing exactly where um, Israel is, how much does he have to do that? And then so that he can break from it and have actual leverage over Israel. And so um, to get to a ceasefire, he may need to spend some amount of time um, dismissing calls for a ceasefire, which is essentially the the U.S. position right now, which is a different position than where one is morally. In other words, he might in his heart of hearts be down with the idea of a ceasefire, but in order to get there, um, he can't be. And as of uh, Wednesday evening at his press conference after his meeting with Xi, um, uh, Biden hadn't moved at all. I mean, he and and was defending Israel's um, handling of the Al-Shifa hospital, which has become the war in microcosm. Obviously, if you're in the Biden administration or you're Tony Blinken, you have influence and you you have leverage over Israel and parts of the Arab world and like all sorts of things and you exercise it. Is there anything that that regular citizens or regular journalists can do or say that feels productive at this moment? Like that's where I get, I, I, I mean, I am so unhappy about so many aspects of this and like the, the suffering is painful, but I, it's just not clear to me that like me opening my mouth to say anything serves anyone, but maybe there are people who can or who are doing it usefully. Well, producing journalism and a record of what's happening on the ground uh, and analysis yep. is super important right now. I mean, issuing yes. a reporting, statement, reporting. no, reporting, yeah. yes, reporting, history, context, analysis, all of those are things we can offer. It's the sloganeering that feels so, at least to me, um, inadequate to the moment. I mean, another thing, John, to tie, tie into your point about Biden, I mean, this is also somewhat on Israel and on Israelis, right? I mean, this is the most right-wing government in Israel's history. Netanyahu, in waging this war, has said these terrible things. I mean, the other day, it was reported on Israeli TV, he didn't say this publicly, it was reported that he had some idea that, you know, the army had, like, let this happen, let Hamas into the country to hurt him. I mean, it's really bananas. Um, And so, you know, his position in the government, how long he stays there, 
um, is a huge issue for America, for the world, for thinking about what comes next. And then there's also current policy in the West Bank and all the ways in which they continue to undermine any kind of peace or two-state solution. I mean, that I don't think the world can look beyond, right? And which isn't to say that they should be looking beyond Gaza anyway, because there's also an argument that what the Israelis are doing in Gaza is very short-term thinking, right? I mean, Tom Friedman has been saying this since October 7th, be worried that you're falling into a trap here. You think you can somehow eradicate Hamas, but Hamas is an idea. If you kill so many Gazans, you are also breeding the kind of resentment that causes terrorism to flourish. So it's, I mean, this is why it's so complicated, right? How how analogous, like, I, I do wonder about this in, in 9-11, which is that we did the United States did go to war against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and we did get rid of Al-Qaeda effectively. Al-Qaeda is not a force that affects the United States anymore. The Taliban continue you know, to cause great suffering and distress in, in the, the nation that we occupied for, for almost 20 years or more than 20 years. Was that a win? Well, there was a ton of blood, a ton of money spent. And did we win? I mean, we also like completely messed things up in Iraq and Afghanistan for a really long time. I think all of us felt by the end or the middle or even the beginning that that was folly. And also, we are very far away from those places. So that is this fundamental difference. I feel like the analogy is kind of, I don't think they really support, uh, certainly they don't support um, the kinds of policies Netanyahu is talking about unfolding in the future. But it's just hard for me to see exactly how you say like, oh, this is just, they're going to wipe out Hamas the way they wiped out Al-Qaeda, or this is like the Taliban, because Israel does have to live right next to Hamas. One thing that analogy brings to mind for me is when Stan McChrystal, um, after he'd been um, uh, removed from the Obama administration, I guess this was probably maybe a year or so after that, he said basically that the U.S. after 9-11 should not have acted as quickly as it did, should have gone around the world as the aggrieved country, built coalitions, um, maybe eradicated the Taliban ultimately, but that there was a period of, of work that could have been done before the missiles started raining down that would have been beneficial to the ultimate goal, which was getting rid of Al-Qaeda. So, um, and would have been smarter because it wouldn't have done so much collateral damage. And so I think that distinction between, to the extent that things get, to use the word again, flattened, and the idea is if you disagree with Israel's approach, you miss, that necessarily means you misunderstand the existential threat that Israel feels is obviously one of the things gets messed up in this, in this argument. You can be for eradicating Hamas thoroughly, but still articulate that it should be done in another way. Right. right. But I think it's really easy to say that at a time sure. when you, with your cousin, sister, yeah. father's not being held hostage. Sure. I think the hostages made this an almost impossible situation for Israel yeah. to not respond quickly. And Well, I wonder if that's the case. I mean, I think that um, first of all, of course, your first right, your first point is the right one. Although I thought what you were going to say is, you know, in retaliation for the twelve hundred or fourteen hundred who were who were slaughtered, and the but the psychological wound of that, the repair that has to be done to national identity and national sense of self in in responding to that, um, that that pausing has a has a cost in terms of that sense of national feeling. I'm not sure though that it's that it's totally the case because I know. Um, our Deborah Pata, who is 
in Israel reporting said that, you know, there's this march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem of the families of the hostages. Um, and a lot of, and, and some of the families are calling for a ceasefire, that it's necessarily the case that the way the uh, IDF is going after Hamas is the only route to, to um, releasing the hostages. And there's some talk now there might be a five-day pause to release 70 or so of them. So I'm not sure that that a ceasefire is antithetical to the interests of releasing the hostages. Just in closing, I was really struck this morning. Uh, I was reading, sitting in bed, reading the times, and there was an article about a war I did not know was happening in Sudan. There's a, there's a civil war in Sudan and it's a partly a religious civil war uh, and huge numbers of casualties, huge and the level of a fifth of the population of, of Darfur displaced uh, population movements on the scale of millions. And it's just, it was just a reminder, like as if we need another one that, that look, all horror is horror. All death is death. All war is war. You know, they're suffering and everyone's suffering matters, but like, it's, it's just like the folk, the, the way that we have monomaniacally focus on this particular conflict does feel like, a mistake <laughs> does feel like it, it it causes us to miss the broader sense in which which we can contribute to well-being in the world in other ways in other places and if only we could stop looking at this stupid thing this terrible thing for one minute yeah and a little humility about what we understand and what we don't understand let's go to cocktail chatter i find it's easier to understand things when i have a drink in me Emily, what is your chatter this week? All right. You're really going to mock me and think I am um, monomaniacal, which is true. I guess not monomaniacal, monofocused. Um, but I've actually been working on reporting um, related to the history of the peace process um, in the 90s. And I really like this movie Oslo, which was based on a play. And it's dramatizing the story of the back channel negotiations that took place um, mostly in these kind of secret locations in Norway between representatives of the PLO and first between just private Israeli citizens. And then the Israeli government kind of shows up with some representatives later. It was made in 2021. Um, and so it has this sort of poignancy about the missed opportunities, like why didn't this work? Um, anyway, it's called Oslo the movie. John, what's your chatter? Two chatters. One is that tonight I'll be um, sleeping out as a part of Covenant House's um, annual effort to raise awareness and raise money to help end youth homelessness. Um, it's the sixth year I've done it. And it's, um, it's a very meaningful thing for me personally, mostly because it puts me in touch with the amazing people who work at Covenant House and also the residents of Covenant House who um, when you see what happens when somebody who has um, left home for one of any number of reasons um, and then comes in contact with the unconditional love of the people who work at Covenant House, how their lives are changed and how really little requires um, uh, to, to take a person and, and uh, unleash who they actually are when you give them the comfort of food and shelter and, um, and people who care and see them. Um, so if you, um, are able, um, and I have gotten a couple of donations for $7, which I, which I kind of love, um, 
Uh, I also got a donation for $1,000. So whichever end of the spectrum you are, um, go to my Instagram page. Um, uh, and the, the link there will take you to my page. That's probably the easiest way to get there. Um, or if that just bores you, then just go to Covenant House and you can donate there. Anyway, so thank you very much for that. Um, my other chatter briefly is we all hear stories about how um, terrifying artificial intelligence is. And they are all, well, many of them are justified. But there was a cool thing I saw, which is not terrible, which is that a Chinese company has found a way to um, make oxygen on Mars. And essentially, it required artificial intelligence because um, essentially what the company did was take materials that you could find on Mars um, and from those materials make um, uh, make oxygen, essentially make oxygen out of water. Um, but um, the... Um, in order to do so, it, the artificial intelligence had to go through 3.7 million formulas um, to find the right one that worked on the fly, and that the process would have taken humans about 2,000 years of trial and error to do that. But if this is if this works um, and can be you know dropped onto Mars, it it would be the way in which you create possible preconditions for humans to live on Mars. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. My chatter super mundane and grim. Uh, D.C., where I live, is in a, the midst of a carjacking crisis. Carjacking has become prevalent, even common. Uh, the, there was a the Secret Service had a vehicle almost carjacked this week where they were protecting a Biden relative and someone tried to carjack a Secret Service vehicle. Everywhere you turn, people are being carjacked. And it's so bad that the police department has issued a set of warnings, advice for how to drive in D.C., and it's just so depressing to think that this advice that the police department has issued is is how you're supposed to behave. So it says drive in the center lane, which is not advice that you're normally given as a driver uh, so that po potential carjackers can't approach your car. Avoid driving alone. Like who can avoid driving alone? Um, don't when you come to a stop, basically do, don't come to a full stop. Leave yourself room to escape at a stop sign. Uh, drive with the doors locked. Don't ever stop to assist a stranger. That's the most amazing one. Yeah, it's depressing. I'm going to send you a chart about taking a longer view of carjackings in D.C. They were very high years ago. Maybe it will make you feel better. I noticed it. I don't know. People I know you won't that. like Take a longer this. view. You won't like, it's like it. Take a longer I'm view. Send it just it to you yes. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. It, it was. I did live through the crack 80s and crack 90s in D.C. Yeah, I was aware it happened. It's. That doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't feel worse today than it did a year ago. I'm going to send you the ago. chart nonetheless. Take a longer view is not on the DC police department's recommendations. I think that's a really bad thing for liberals to do when they say, oh, it's not so bad. Look what it was like 30 years ago. It's, I did say it was not so bad. I'm just going to send you the well, chart. You, the take the long view is absolutely it's not so bad. Like, look at the, arc, the grand arc of history. You don't die from influenza and typhus anymore. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm not going to defend myself more. Oh, I also have another chatter, which is, um, as, as many of you know, some of you know, I lead tours of a secret Civil War fort in Rock Creek Park. And um, every so often I add new tours. And I just added a whole batch of new tours in the summer and fall of 2024. So if you are able to join and spring of 2024. So if you're, if you always want to do that, go uh, to Airbnb and look for exploring a secret fort, exploring a secret fort on Airbnb. 
Uh, you can also email me at davidplusgmail.com and I can point you to that same URL. Um, but but exploring a secret fort, come join me. It's really fun. It has five stars. Five stars. Listeners, you have sent us great chatters. You continue to send us chatter after chatter after chatter. Please keep them coming by emailing us at gabfest at slate.com, something that you have been chattering about. And we have a chatter this week from David Moran. Hello, GabFest listeners. I'm David from Alameda, California, and I'm here to chatter about an article from Morsel, New York by Chloe Olowitz about a government program designed to extensively catalog all fruit varieties being grown across the United States. Between 1886 and 1942, the USDA worked with farmers and commissioned 65 artists to create over 7,500 paintings, drawings, and wax models as part of the official pomological watercolor collection. These detailed watercolor paintings and line drawings serve to document thousands of cultivars related to every fruit family sprouting across America and its burgeoning agricultural industry. Thanks to a recent FOIA request, the entire high-resolution collection is now freely available on the USDA website. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, David Moran. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, the Senior Director for Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please send your conundrums to us at slate.com slash conundrums. Have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll be with you before Thanksgiving or on Thanksgiving next week. Uh, but have a great thanks pre-Thanksgiving. I always love the pre-Thanksgiving week myself. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, last night, on Wednesday night, I should say, uh, Xi Jinping had a dinner in San Francisco as part of his visit for the APEC summit and part of his meeting with Joe Biden. There was also a, a dinner, a $2,000 plate dinner, but he invited some special guests. Uh, he invited some friends he had made 40 years ago when he had visited Iowa. So as a young man in 1983, when he was 31 years old, I guess, youngish man. Um, uh, Xi Jinping came as a part of a delegation from Hubei province to Iowa to see various things, food processing plants, the farms of Iowa, how packaging worked. Um, he ended up, because they didn't have enough hotel rooms around, he ended up staying with a family and uh, was there for several weeks. He ate a lot of pork. He drove a truck. He... Uh, sat by the Mississippi River. Basically, he did what John Dickerson likes to do. It was it was a John Dickerson itinerary, and he made some friends. And he invited those friends, who he'd also seen back in 2012. He invited them to dinner in San Francisco. So does this mean that U.S.-China relations are now uh, hunky-dory? It's like the, the, Pacific, the, the Atlantic Alliance with Great Britain, because Xi Jinping has some old Iowa friends. Well, it can't hurt. Um Yes. I think, I mean, and by the way, that is the essentially the foundation of the limited progress that Biden and she made um, in their meeting on Wednesday night. Afterwards, President Biden, who um, two things were notable. One, he was so careful about everything he said on China. Um, I, I mean, even more careful than he was about the things he said uh, on the Israel Hamas war. Um, but, but where he was expansive was about how 
he got to know she when they were both vice presidents. Um, and that personal relationship and personal relationships and the idea that they are going to be able to call each other on the phone if anything goes sideways is um, was was one of his main points of the benefit of the meeting. So I'm uh, it's not just important that he knows actual Americans, but it actually might matter at the top level, too. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.